you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Coming up on Huddle and Flow. There is no career. And let's just be honest, I haven't coached in three years. If it wasn't for Marvin Lewis, I wouldn't have been coaching anyway after I left Oakland. So let, let's just be very honest about what has gone on. And that's why I, don't, I feel like it's so important to tell the story and not just about my career. I have kids. I have kids who look up to me who walk through this just as well. And their dad's got to sit there and not be honest about what happened. I mean, to me, what bothers me the most, I'm telling the truth and can can back all of this up and everybody sees it as a problem. The truth in this world is now a problem. Mm. You're not supposed you, you to be able to tell the truth. That's next on Huddle and Flow. All right, everybody, welcome to the second scoop of the Huddle and Flow podcast this week. I am Steve White here with my brother Jim Trotter, two-thirds of the Howard University Mafia. Our producer, Thomas Warren, on the ones and twos, he completes the puzzle. Again, the Huddle Flow podcast brought to you by Intuit, the proud makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. And Jim, today, real serious episode, right? We, we've got uh, former Browns and Raiders head coach Hugh Jackson on here. Hugh's getting ready to release a book. Um, but he comes on, Jim, and he speaks his truth about a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff of what happened with the Cleveland Browns. This is some heavy stuff, people. And some of the things he hopes what he experienced can benefit particularly coaches of color moving forward. Yeah, you know, Stevie pulls back the curtains on what it's like to be a head coach in the NFL and to deal with management, to deal with ownership. And a lot of times coaches can't speak about it immediately after they're let go because their contracts prohibit them either from saying anything negative about an organization or their NDAs in there. Well, Hugh's contract with the Browns expired, so he's now free to speak. And that's what he's doing. You know, he's a man who you can tell doesn't appreciate the perception that um, this was all his fault and his fault only. And he says he accepts his responsibility and the struggles that the Browns had. But it runs much deeper than one man. So it's interesting to hear his viewpoint on this. 100%. You remember, Hugh, Hugh Jackson has not coached since he was fired from the Cleveland Browns. We want to make this clear, too. We did reach out to the Browns um, after we recorded this interview um, to see if they had anything to say about some of the things that Hugh Jackson levies, and they declined to comment on this. So we did reach out. So, Jim, let's get right to it. Here's Hugh Jackson. All right, JT. Now we are joined by our special guest, a good friend of ours, 
Or for a long, long time, Hugh Jackson. Hugh, welcome to the Huddle Flow Podcast. Hey, I'm excited to be here. It's always great to see both you men. You guys have done a great job. We appreciate you, Hugh. You out there making news, huh? Yes, I am. I uh, finally, uh, you know, I've had to sit in the, the rafters for a while and not say anything. And um, now that I can, I think the story needs to be told. Why now? What is it at this point that, that you want to step forward and speak about your experience in Cleveland? Well, Jim, it goes back to just what I said. I mean, there have been everybody created and creating the narrative of what went on in Cleveland during my time. And I could not say nothing bound by contract uh, in those things. And I felt like uh, people didn't know. You know. I've been buried. I've been vilified as a bad coach, didn't know what I was doing, just the whole nine yards. And so uh, there's only so much anybody can take. And it is not just for me. When I look at it, it's also for the minority coaches that are coming up. I don't, I don't want to see this happen to anybody ever again. And more so than that, I think me not coaching has impacted the hiring of some minority men who have been in a situation where they've been offensive coordinators uh, because of what my record has been. And I don't think that's fair either. So Hugh, tell us what happened. What is it that you want to clear up? What I wanted to clear up is what I went to Cleveland to do is not, and what they told me we were going to do is not at all what we did. Uh, I went there to win. You know, I think you guys know I was the head coach of the Raiders eight and eight, you leave there, you, you end up leaving because Al dies. I have to go to Cincinnati and coach on defense. Now just think about that. Eight and eight head coach, top 10 offensive <laughs> team and can't get a job. So then I had to go coach on offense. And I say that for this reason, because if I was going to take another head coaching job after I worked my way back up off from defense, back over the offense, coaching running backs, become pro football writers, offensive coach of the year in 2015, then there were certain things that had to be in place for me to take another job. I just got fired after being eight and eight. And the number one thing that I made very clear is I needed to win. I needed to win. I needed to be in a situation where I could do something special. And then I wanted the support that I needed in order to create winning. And if you go look at my press conference, that's exactly what I was told I was going to get. And after being there for about a month and a half, I start realizing that this is going down the wrong road. This has became become uh, an analytical process, you know, at the time. So it was analytics versus football. They were going to prove that coaches and scouting did not know what they were doing and that analytics could run an organization. And I had to stand out in front of that. And I fought it for two straight years hard. I have documentation where I writ, wrote the owner several times about this needed to stop because I knew it was going to career, kill careers, going to players, coaches, everybody. And it was going to all of a sudden turn the fans on me. And that's exactly what it did. Can you, can you, can you, real, you? Real, real quick, Jim, before we get there, I just want to – so, and, I, and I've got two here, but first off, okay, so when you were going through this process, Hugh, because I remember this like yesterday now. What did they tell you was going to be the plan? And you said it took, you know, a month and a half before you realized, you know, you'd been hoodwinked. So what was the original conversation about what was going to happen with the process of you being their head coach? We're going to get to winning as fast as we can. We're going to give you the resources that you need. We're going to hire a experienced GM. To, to pair with you in order to get this organization where it needs to be. And whatever resource, other resources we need, we're going to supply you. Okay, so before that, because you again, I, I remember this, because I remember when you took that job, I think a lot of us were like, why? Because we knew, knew what the Browns were before you, we got there. We knew how good of a coach you were. And I know you had interviewed, I believe, for the Niners and a couple other teams so was this a situation where you were like i'm not going to get offered any other head coaching jobs so let me go to this one even knowing what the reputation of the browns was and steve i appreciate you saying that and i didn't know what the reputation was and i was going to get offered by other i did have other opportunities i made a decision based on what was shared with me i mean i again i want to make it very clear as a minority coach I knew I couldn't go take a job where I was going to have an opportunity to lose. And no, nobody would do that. 
Nobody would do that and kill their own career. So obviously people were saying the things to me that needed to be said in order for me to feel comfortable in taking a job. I could have stayed and had a chance to go to New York. I could have stayed in Cincinnati and became the head coach there. So it wasn't that I didn't have opportunities. I wanted my own opportunities like anybody else would, but I did it because I was told and promised certain things that didn't come to fruition. Hugh, can you give me and, and the audience an example of where football ran into analytics um, that they would understand? Okay, so when you think about analytics, the analytic process is it's all about historical data. It's about taking the data and comparing a player to where they are now to potentially where they could be in the future. What people don't understand, someone has to input that information. Somebody has to give it the subject matter. And if you don't take that from coaches who have the experience and wisdom of having done it, then it's probably not going to come out very well. So what was really happening, they was creating their own formats on how they wanted to get this information and they were not using the coaches wisdom and knowledge. So again, and I have nothing against the player what at all, but you take Cody Kessler, who we drafted in the third round, his, the information said he was going to be a great player. But when you look at it through my eyes, through an experienced coach who has coached quarterbacks, I didn't see that. I saw a really good uh, quarterback at USC. He was a really good college quarterback. Could he transcend and be a time quarterback in the National Football League? I did not see that. But their data points say that he would be. So that's where you start to have analytics versus coaching. And analytics are now telling the coaches what is good. It's not the coaches telling analytics what is good. Hugh, take me back to um, the Miles Garrett draft. I'm particularly interested in that with the stories I've heard. What was that process like and how did it play out? It was really hard. Uh, I think everyone knows that uh, we were needing a quarterback and we were. And Mitchell Trubisky was seen um, you know, by the organization as the best quarterback in the draft. I did not agree with that. Um, I thought Miles Garrett was the best player, period, because I think he's a generational talent. I think everybody knew. I, I stood on the table and fought extremely hard for Miles Garrett to be on that football team. Whereas at the last second, yeah, I think the other side came around and said, Hugh's right. But it was a lot of bickering back and forth because I was not going to publicly or privately support the decision if we took Mitchell Trubisky because I didn't think that that was, I didn't think he was the first pick of the draft quarterback. But Hugh, well, I, I want to be clear. I want to be clear. I want to be clear on right. this. The organization was prepared to take Mitchell Trubisky number one overall, correct? Oh, absolutely. There's no, there's no question about that. Okay. So look, look, right now the Bears have been dragged for years for trading up to take Mitchell Trubisky and passing on Deshaun Watson and Mahomes. The Cleveland Browns, look, it was almost universal, Hugh, talking to people that Miles Garrett was the best player in the draft. Mm -hmm. And the Cleveland – now, who was – if you don't mind, since we're, we're telling you, who was pushing the hardest for Mitchell Trubisky and who did you have to flip to get to Miles Garrett? Well, I mean, obviously, Sashi Brown was leading the charge with Andrew Berry and Paul Podesta. I mean, the same people, that's what gets me today. The same people we're talking about other than Sashi are in paid positions and running the organization today. So I just, I don't understand, you know? And so obviously they were doing something right. They were figuring out something, but I think in real time, they were figuring out what they could do, what would work in this process and what would work. And that's why we're sitting here today having this conversation. How did you flip them? But that's the thing. You say flip them. I think I was very um, strong first in my not going to support it. I wasn't going to stand back out there again and make the mistake. I've been vilified about saying just trust me on Cody Kessler, right? <laughs> I was not going to stand out there. We took a quarterback first overall that I didn't believe in and say I'm with this all the way like I did with that. I wasn't going to do it anymore. So I told him I'm not privately or publicly support it if you take Mitchell Trubisky. Here's the other thing, Hugh, and I know you've talked about this, <clears throat> excuse me, elsewhere, that you were prepared to walk away from the Browns. Um, and they persuaded you to stay. The owner, Jimmy Haslam, persuaded you to stay in part 
by offering you an extension. Yes. Take us through that process and what was going on and how that played out. Well, we had played the Minnesota Vikings in, in, in London and came back and, and very honestly had a meeting. Uh, some, there was a group of players, I'm not going to get into depth of what it was, that had a meeting with ownership, with Jimmy and D, and told them how they felt. And Which was what? Uh, uh, again, that they needed to improve the roster, that we needed better players, that we needed to be in a better situation. I mean, these players... And like I said, I'm not going to get into names. They knew and understood what was going on. They could feel it. I mean, you're a player that's competing. You're giving your all. You're practicing. And now you don't have an opportunity to win. You don't want to keep continue to put your body out there on the line like that. So now here we go. And that same week, you know, which is right around October 30th, I was offered a contract extension. What people have to understand is I was in the room with my agent and my wife at the time. So this is not BS. I mean, I laugh the way people think, well, there's no way this could have happened. Jimmy D was there. Jimmy apologized to me and her about what he had put us through and what we have been going through. So here's the contract extension. Okay. And, and at the time, I'm a one in 23 coach. And I told him I would accept it if there was three things that would happen. That was if he make it public, because then it would take it off of me. It would take what had been going on with me and all of a sudden clear that up because then the fans would say, wait a minute, this, this hasn't been right for him. And if he would uh, come out and, ex- and tell people exactly what had been going on up to that point. And the third thing was to go get us better players. That's exactly what I asked. None of those things were done. So wait, number one was take it off to, to come out publicly. Come out publicly about the contract extension. Mm-hmm. Come, and what was number back, two? To come back out and clear my name about that. I did not know about this process, exactly what was going to happen, that there was going to be a teardown of the football team. I was never told that. As I say to you, man, what coach would take a team in his second opportunity of becoming a head coach, and especially a minority coach, and go be the lead of a teardown? I mean, I, I was a coordinator. I'm making great money. I don't. It wasn't about money. It was about winning. Coaches do this to win. We don't do this to lose, you know? And so it's just so amazing that people can't connect the dots. Nobody wants to really dig in and try to connect the dots. But that's what I asked. And then I said, we needed to get better players on this team. And what happened after that, obviously, Sashi was let go. In came John Dorsey. And there did become a more influx of players into the organization. So what happened from that point? Why did it not improve? It, it didn't the rest of the year where well, you can't make any changes or trades, you know, we're, we're past the midway point of the season, right. now, you know? And so again, go look at the roster we had. We had three quarterbacks right. that had never won a game in the national football right. but I'm supposed to fashion a way and fix a way to have them win, which, which we, the staff, the players, and I'm not putting down any players. Even when I talk about Cody Kester, I'm not, they're all great people. But winning in the National Football League, it takes a certain type of player in order for you to win. Players, I should say. And I think we all know that. And that's what we were missing. Hugh, when, when we talk about analytics a lot of times, look, analytics are part of the NFL. Usually it's for situational football and things like that to the teams that apply it. You know, of course, some of it's for player acquisition. But it sounds here, the, the way, if you could just explain, right, for people who may not know, because I will, I will lay it out in the simple terms and you take – you may have a receiver in college who's averaging nine yards a catch, and he's super fast and everything else. So everyone thinks this is a game breaker. When those yardage totals could simply be because he ran nothing but go routes, right? He's not a case catch and run guy. He's not a great route running guy, and that's where the football coaching comes in. If you could explain how, at least in terms of player acquisition, analytics is used and the difference between how football coaches view it and how the analytical people view it. Because I think that's something that just it gets thrown together in a pot, especially when us in the media are talking about it. And folks may not understand why football people get driven crazy sometimes about the analytical term and how it's used. Absolutely. Because when you think of analytics, it is all driven by numbers. It's a numbers and it's about the computer. It's what the computer tells you. But what people don't understand, someone has to input that information into the computer. What is your, what are the data sets that you're using? What are you using to make the decisions about what type of player this is? 
if you're not using a coach's wisdom about his his vision and his profile of a player, it's going to come out different. So if the coaches are leading the analytics, you have a better chance of having it work together and overlap together. When analytics is the total lead and that's all you do, it's never going to work with coaches because coaches, we are experienced. We're our own algorithm. We're our own thought process because we do it over time. We understand the height, weight, speed, the determination, the grit, all the other non-essential things that people think are when you think in the analytics because they can't measure heart. They can't measure determination. They can't measure hard work. So those things are so important to have any real good football player. And that's what analytics can't tell you. It, it, it can't it can't give you any information on those things. So analytics, we're talking about player acquisition and, and things like this. Hugh, you know, I was in that building an awful lot when you were coaching there. Mm-hmm. There was some divisiveness on that coaching staff, too. That, that, that did not seem like the most united coaching staff. Did you put that together? I mean, analytics had nothing to do with that, did it? No, no, you're talking about at the end because the coaching staff. Right, right. Toward, 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 towards the end, towards the well, end. Well, absolutely. We had two coaches that came from different organizations and one was a bad match. I mean, there's no question about that. I mean, that I've said it several times. If I can go back and change anything, I never would have hired Todd Haley on our football team. I mean, that was a bad, bad decision. Hugh, what was the, 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 conflict between the two of you you and Todd why did it not work I think Todd wanted my job let's just be honest it was plain and simple he came there he seen a one in 31 coach did not know exactly what the process had been and what had happened there I think he made a decision I'm all in and trying to unseat this guy let's just be honest that's what it was period how quickly did you realize that very quickly very quickly in training camp and don't think that I didn't make that known don't think that we had had conversations about all the insubordination that went on in order to move on from that. And so that never happened either. Conversations so, with ownership or conversations with Todd? Conversations with Todd, conversations with ownership, conversations with John Dorsey. I, I, all this documented. Mm. So, so Hugh, so when we saw that, when, when, the, when the public saw that clip on Hard Knocks, you know, when, when Freddie Kitchens and Todd spoke up, how far down the line were you in terms of that fracture? It was it was really the uh, beginning of the fracture, but I, you could Ooh. see it and you could see it because what had happened was, I mean, there's no coaching staff that's going to go into training camp and not cover when players are going to not be practicing. It, this wasn't decided on that day. That's why you come back early. You have all these meetings, you know, and we had two years of data that says if these particular players don't practice every day, they don't get pulled muscles. So the staff knew that way before that conversation ever happened. Now, maybe they didn't take notes. Maybe they didn't understand it. But it's just really interesting when you think about it. The guys that asked the question wasn't my guys who had been on the staff. I'm about two new coaches. So they knew exactly what was going on. It wasn't new to him. So that I was very surprised on how that happened. But at the end of the day, I still get surprised when people get mad because you say, this is my bus and I'm going to I I was a head coach. I'm not saying anything wrong. I mean, that's the way sometimes, and if people knew the conversations that go on when the cameras are not there, they shocked at some of the conversations that happen in coaches' meeting rooms. So please, I mean, we, we, we took that and made it so big, and I just laughed, but they made it big because I was a coach that had been losing. The coach that's losing shouldn't say anything. That's a joke. Hugh, when did you realize that that your job was in jeopardy? Honestly, Jim, I knew my job was in jeopardy after the first year. I mean, I I came to win. I didn't come to lose. You can't well, lose. No, no, I, I get you, you no, can't you, lose I get, and stand in front of a team and think that it's no, going to be okay and think you're going to make it. No, I get that. I'm saying though, after it appears they have made some of the changes that you wanted in terms of now you got a football man in with Dorsey. Mm-hmm. You've got the number one pick in the draft. They go out and draft Baker Mayfield. Um, so I'm assuming you believe that you're on the right track now. Oh, yes. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, Jim, I thought after the contract extension, things were going to be good. You know, we were going to make the changes that we needed. We we're going to get better football players and that we would be trending in the right direction. Everything said we were. Now, there were some other issues, you know, within 
like you said, the staff, and we just talked about those a little briefly, but we were playing better. We were competing better. We had been in four overtime games. We had won two games and, and there's three of three of the others we should have won. So I was feeling better. So I don't know that I ever thought that my job was in jeopardy. And then we went and played Tampa Bay. And I made a statement after the game that I wanted to help on the offensive side of the ball because I didn't see improvement that I was looking for. And I wanted to really dive in and help. And then, then to me, that was a problem again. You know, as a head coach and a guy who is an offensive coach, I'm not supposed to say anything. Who says you're not supposed to say anything? Well, well the media went to me. They said, hey, you know, boy, Todd is such a great coordinator. He's the, the coordinator. You should just stay off of that. He doesn't need to be involved in the offense at all. Um, that's not his thing. I'm the head coach. So what was the conversation like when you find out when they released you? Well, I mean, I, I'm going to go on record saying this because I need to, because it's the truth. I was shocked because Jimmy told me on that Wednesday before we played Pittsburgh that we were moving on. He told me clearly, he came in the office and told me clearly, he said, Hugh, he says, I am, regardless of the outcome of the game, we're going to move on from Todd period. I've never been more excited in my life. And I did. I talked to two coaches on my staff and told them. So I'm this again, people can go check this all they want. I felt good. I felt relieved that, hey, we're going to be have a chance to move forward here. Me get this offense together. I thought we had a really good team and I thought we had a chance. And sure enough, we go play Pittsburgh. We lose after the game. I started feeling first. There was a feeling of feeling good when I drove into the building because I'm thinking Todd's going to be gone. Because I thought that was what was holding us back. I really did. And then all of a sudden that morning, I can't find anybody. I can't find Peter John Baptiste. I can't find Jimmy. I can't find anybody. We have a staff meeting. I go back in my office and then walks John Dorsey and, and Jimmy Hassel. And that's when he they proceeded to tell me that they were moving in a direction. But I got pissed off because I'm listening to John Dorsey tell me I lost the team. You got to be kidding me. Lost the team? And we're playing four overtime games and competing like we were competing? No, I have a coach that is creating an issue on offense that I need to get rid of and move forward and get this offense to where it needs to be so we can play complimentary football. Why do you think they, they, that Jimmy Haslam flipped? I have no idea. I have no idea. And again, okay. when you look at it, because what he told me in the meeting, he said he was losing. And I was very clear with him, Jimmy, the losing. I, I mean, here was forced losing for two years that I stood in front of for the organization and took it. So now when we have a chance, we have better players. Now you're going to tell me it's time to go. That made no sense to me. Hugh, here's, here's it, and it's interesting, you know, hearing you tell all this and, and spill all this. So clear the acrimony with Todd Haley. And then you have the situation. I can't remember. It was later that season or next season. You guys, you're, you're back with Cincinnati. Baker Mayfield doesn't shake your hand and says some things. And you said you were surprised by that because you thought you were cool with Baker. Do you think the stuff with, with you know, that was, that was Todd Haley who had maybe poisoned Baker against you? Or do you think, you know, why was that? Because I remember your initial comments like, I, hey, I thought me and Baker were good. I don't, I don't know where that's coming from. I'll be the first to tell you, see, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know if if what happened or how it happened, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if some of all those things are involved in it. Because at the end of the day, I did not see anything like that with Baker. I mean, I was the one to help draft Baker number one overall. I didn't coach Baker. I wasn't Baker's play caller. I, did I spend uh, in time with Baker? Not a lot. It's only one time I brought him in after the first game of the year and sat down and watched football with him. Other than that, that was really it because he had a new quarterback coach. Obviously, coaches MPZ was there, and then Todd Haley was the, was the coordinator. So I had to let, to me, my presence I felt would have overshadowed everything if I just stayed over there and started coaching. I needed to let them be the best version of them. That was me delegating authority. And so when I look up now, this guy is acting like this with me. I was a little surprised. Hugh, let me. Uh, I'm curious as to your concern, if any about coming forward now and what it could do for your career? There is no career. And let's just be honest. I haven't coached in three years. If it wasn't for Marvin Lewis, I wouldn't have been coaching anyway after I left Oakland. So let, let's just be very honest about what has gone on. And that's why I, don't, I feel like it's so important 
to tell the story and not just about my career. I have kids. I have kids who look up to me who walk through this just as well. And their dad's got to sit there and not be honest about what happened. I mean, to me, what bothers me the most, I'm telling the truth and can, can back all of this up and everybody sees it as a problem. The truth in this world is now a problem. Mm. You're not supposed you, you to would, be able to tell the truth. No, no college opportunities either? Or do I you want to bother with college? Oh, I would go to college in a heartbeat, but I haven't had a chance at really anything, to be honest with you. I mean, and I understand why. People think I was that one in 31 coach. You're the one who, and, and I was a part of it. I take my responsibility in it, but at the same time, to say it's just me, I, I just, to me, that's not right. Let me let me ask you this, Hugh. With you saying you don't want other minority coaches to walk into situations blindly and get licked upside the head. Jim and I, you know, we had David Cully on from who, who took, took the Houston Texans head coaching job. Um, we all have heard, we all have known, we've talked to people about the dysfunction going on down there. David Cully was the only black head coach to get hired this hiring cycle. And I'm just using him as an example because we wish him, he's a wonderful man, and we wish him the best. But it seems, again, that a black head coach is getting is getting a situation. The only situation offered to him is one where he's a placeholder for the next guy because he's going to be going through a teardown like how you went through. When you see a situation like this, and again, I'm just using him as an example. Is this another reason why, I mean, again, you're, maybe it's not him, but you're, you're coming out and speaking like, guys, not every job is a good job. Something that Jim has, has said since we started this podcast and before then. Is this kind of the warning shot you want to fire so future people don't walk into situations where they've got a saw getting ready to split them in the head. Oh, absolutely. And you better truly understand your contract. I mean, I know agents uh, are responsible, but you better make sure you truly understand your contract and what you're hired to do and what decisions you're going to be able to make. But you said it. I don't want guys to ever go through this because it's painful. And if you're put in a situation where you can't, I mean, everybody say, just leave, right? Where, where are you going to go? I mean, you, you, you have nowhere to go, you know, so you have to either stay and fight it and try to get it right. Or did the people who hired you, did they flip, they do old bait and switch at the last second. And now you're in a tough spot. You know, so I think the guys got to really make sure that they dig in and understand and ask those deep digging questions before you take the jobs, but have your eyes and ears open to everything. But, but is it really just a matter of asking or is it a matter of potentially having to get things in writing? Oh, you have, terms to, get, of, I mean, you have to get them in writing. There is no, I, it, it, if it is in writing, you, it's not going to happen. I don't care what it is. It better all be in writing. Hugh, you know, you, you talk about Andrew Berry and, and Dee Podesta and some of the guys who were there with the analytics guys. They're there now. That team, went to the, that team went to the play, that team went to the right. playoffs this year. Well, they got a, they have a really good team. Absolutely. But that's that's the two years of understanding what was needed to make the process work. And now I think they're doing it through the through the coach's lens and not through the analytical lens. Look, it could have worked when I was there. there. There's no question, but you have to work together. You can't have a different plan that the coach has. So I think they're working together. Look, I'm glad that things are going great. For the Cleveland Browns, I want to see them do well. I have no hard feelings towards uh, the team and them doing well. My hard feelings are is the two guys who are running it was there in the one and thirty one and a part of all of this. And so either they're saying they did something right in order to still be there and being paid for what they did. Are you kidding me? That shouldn't be that way. So if that's the case, it was third down and they lost, then I should be reverent too for doing exactly what they wanted to have happen, which was to lose. Hugh, have you heard from anyone there, particularly since you've come out and started speaking? I won't, I'm not gonna hear from anybody from there. It's just so funny. So I mentioned a contract yesterday. Hey, here's my challenge to anybody. Well, tell them that they didn't give me a contract. <laughs> I mean, I, let, I, let's, let's go. I mean, I'm tired of people saying Hugh's lying about everything. So let's, if that is the case, tell them that let's not do the no comment say, no, we didn't give you one. And then I'll prove them wrong. I'm not going to come said. on. I'm not going to come on here and have conversations, especially with two men I respect and anybody else I've had conversations with. If I am not being forthcoming and truthful and I have all the documentation to back it all up. 
I have always said a no comment is a confirmation. If, it, if it's a lie or it's wrong and it's easily provable, then prove it. And if you choose not to, then you're confirming it. So, And look, Hugh, J- Jim and I have known you for years, man. We've had some some really great conversations. And so my thing is this. If you're saying there there is no career for you in coaching, what do you, you know, what what are your what are your plans? I mean, what what is it something that you would I, like to I, can I say this before Hugh answers that? That bothers me to no end from this it's standpoint. To no end. Thank you, Jim. You can you can not like Hugh personally, and I and I get there are personality conflicts all throughout the league, but no one can say that Hugh Jackson doesn't know football and can't is not a good correct. football coach. You can't, can't say right. it. Can't and say be taken it. seriously. Now, you can debate whether you feel he's a good head coach or not. I'm not speaking to that. But in terms of football, you can't tell me Hugh Jackson doesn't know football. And for him not to be in the league or coaching someplace, to me, is wrong. And that's just my personal opinion. So I'm sorry I interrupted. No, I'm glad you, you did. Know, Hugh. Hugh, you can go on ahead and address it. No, I appreciate you guys saying that. My, my biggest concern is people don't like when people put the truth out there. I mean, I'm being honest. I mean, people have moved on and they don't want to deal with this, but I am supposed to sit in the corner and just get the other assistant coaches that I have. They're just supposed to take it. The players that play for me, they're supposed to take, they're all wearing this one in 31. And I think that's fair. If we have to wear it, then everybody should wear it. And then everybody should be very transparent about what happened to take it off of everybody so we can move forward. I have coaches that are sitting at home that have nothing to do and are very good coaches. And they're all the families that I brought to the Cleveland Browns and put those people in situations to fail. That's not right. And that hurts me more than anything. How involved is ownership in terms of the either the day-to-day or the seasonal running of a team with the Haslam's? How involved are they? Very. I mean, some people, there's some organizations I've been in that are not. There's some organizations I've been in where the owner is is very hands-on and wants to know all. There, when I was there, he wanted to know all, and I get it. And not only know, but I mean, how much did he put his fingerprints on determining what was done and what wasn't done? Well, I mean, they they never determined what was done offensively or defensively or specialty wise. But there would be comments about players, certain players, and things that that people wanted to see, and and I get that. But I just think. You got to You hire people to do those jobs. Let them do those jobs. Give them the opportunity because they have the expertise to do it. Let them do it. But I get it. The owners, they it's their team. They can do whatever they want. And they see it through their eyes. I'm curious, and, and I'll leave it on this. Just was there a point in terms of personnel decisions of who to draft or who to sign where ownership said, this is who we're going to sign or this is who we're going to draft? Oh, I, I there's no question those things happen. Oh, yeah. How often? More often than people think. Can you give us some examples? I don't. I, you got to read the book. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Speaking, speaking of the book, you're, you're writing a book or you've written a book. Um, when When is this going to be released? And, and you've got to give us the title because right now, I mean, you've been throwing freaking meteors and fireballs. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not going to release the title, but hopefully by the end of the, the, towards the end of this year, the book will come out. Uh, and I just, again, I, I think people think I'm, I have a, I'm after the Browns. I'm not after the Browns. I'm after what happened. I'm after the truth. I want people to really understand what goes on behind these doors and these big businesses. Because this is what's been happening throughout our world. It's not just, you know, not in sports. This really happens in sports every day, too. You know, to be oppressed and not be able to say the truth for this long about what was really happening, to watch my family go through the same things I was going through because they watched it and walked through it with me. I mean, to me, that's amazing. And, and then when you do come out, oh, you're not supposed to say that. You're saying the wrong thing. I'm just telling the truth. And I, I do have a hard time with people not really wanting to hear the truth. Are you finally able to speak the truth because your contract has been paid? Is yes. that, I'm trying to understand the timeline. Is that Absolutely. what's going on here? Absolutely. And if you understand contract law, you know, there's things that you cannot say until you're not under contract anymore. Right. I'm not right. under contract. So I now can say what I feel. And I challenge anybody to challenge me on anything that I said. 
Well, let me let me move from there real quickly, Hugh, because there's something that that's important that you're doing. You found it enough an organization to address um, the lack of diversity among head coaches in uh, in the NFL and and even on the lower ranks to some degree. Tell us how that came about and and how you're hoping to make an impact there. It came about because I met a, a lady by the name of Leslie Kirsch, uh, who is out of Columbus and who really wants to uh, do something to impact uh, that space. Uh, we uh, got together with uh, a lot of top business people um, that we kind of hand selected and, uh, and some others. And we came together to start trying to have dialogue on how to find real time solutions for the situation that's going on with diversity and inclusion. And uh, I think we're making some huge progress. Uh, we still have a ways to go, but at the same time, there's so many people that want to help in this space because we can see that there has been a problem and especially in sports. It's, it's easy to identify the problem, Hugh. What have you found in terms of discussions about potential solutions? I found it to be very difficult because I think people, in my opinion, um, I think there are people who are afraid. Some people don't want to attack the bear, you know, because I don't think people want to lose their value or they don't want to lose their opportunity. I mean, it's just like myself. I'm not in a situation where I'm concerned about that, you know, and I think the people who are going to be very good advocates of this, that's the way they have to attack this. You can't worry about what's going to come back. If you're going to make change, you got to make change. You got to be comfortable about doing it. And, um, I think uh, we're getting a group of people who are very serious and determined about moving this thing forward. Well, the, the one thing I'll say is that Steve and I have both said, this isn't a league problem, it's an ownership problem. So are you attacking this from the standpoint of trying to change the minds of these owners or is it more of a structural issue that, that you're trying to address? I think it has to start with the owners first. You, you said it, I mean, and then I think uh, there is a structural uh, issue that needs to be dealt with as well. I think the whole uh, system needs to be reshaped uh, and thought of differently in order to make change. Hugh, let me ask you this, because you've been a part of the NFL's quarterback coaching summit. You've been on some advisory panels, NFL sanctioned back to whatever, to help with some of this process. Do you think you coming out now and, and, and speaking your truth on what happened, that you might be pushed like, okay, Hugh's Hughes being a little controversial now, we don't want him to be part of the solution to what we're trying to do. The last time I sat in front of the diversity and inclusion committee in Indianapolis, I probably was difficult then too, because I told the truth about what I saw, not about what my experience was, what I think the real issues were. And I don't think a lot of people really wanted to hear that. And that's okay. You know, I'm not afraid to, to say what, what the truth is. I think a lot of people need to go back and check themselves and start being willing to listen to what's, what the truth is really about and not just covering up. And I think that's what's wrong with our society, just even today. Have you been and invited we'll, to participate in anything since then? No. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> and, and Hugh, just be clear on this. Um, you say people aren't being truthful about what the problem is. When we talk about DNI as it relates to coaching hires, what is the problem? I think we have to go back, uh, Jim, and really start from the beginning of the league. I mean, minorities were not seen as equals when we started, from players or to coaches. There was no black players in the National League until Kenny Washington was by injunction put in the league. There was no yeah, black coaches until yeah. 20, 40 years after that when Art Shell became a head coach. So I'm saying you go back and look at the history their starting point was way different than our starting point. And so you have to understand that. You have to walk back through that and understand all the bias that went on way back then so that you can really talk about it now and try to find real solutions. And people don't want to do that because I don't think it's about those things. It's really about money. The, the league is still growing. The league is still making a tremendous amount of money. So in everybody's eyes, why change? But if you're going to put it out there that this is about diversity and inclusion, then you have to do something about it. And in order to do that, you need to understand the history of the league, when it started and how it started in order to do better, to think better and to do better. And I don't think people want to do that. 
And you, I would, you, I would say that it's not just about the coaches or the players. It is about the NFL, period. When you look at the league office, when you look at the team front offices, um, the executives. So it's, a, it's, a, it's funny. We focus on coaches and general mm-hmm. managers. But this is a problem that's so systemic and it runs so deep. And again, it's not just the NFL. I want to be clear on that. Absolutely. This is business across the country, major corporations and whatnot. But as you say, and I've said this too, if you're not going to be honest about it, and if you're not going to look in the mirror and say, we've got a problem, how are we going to correct it? And not just how are we going to correct it, but we're going to be intentional about correcting it. I don't know that it gets much better anytime soon. When we do it to ourselves, that's even worse. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I stood, I was a coach of the Cleveland Browns. Andrew Barry knows the real. Okay, and he is a black man. That's what hurts. Okay, where, where, where are you at in this process for Hugh? Forget everything else. Like you said, whether you thought he was a good head coach or whatever, he's still a man with a family. Hmm. Where are you at in this? Oh, well, I'm mad now because Hugh's telling the truth. You, that, that's a problem? That shouldn't be a problem. Where are you at? So we don't pick our brothers up. We say we do. We don't. And that's amazing to me. Well, that's that, that's a strong point. And, and Hugh, I'm, I'm going to button it up on this because one of the reasons that Jim and I, you know, once we afforded the opportunity of this podcast, because <clears throat> we're, we're, we're two cats who just don't hold back. I mean, we just we want people to come on here and speak your truth like you came on here and spoke your truth today. And I think it's important that people hear all sides. You talk about representation. You talk about things like this. You talk about Jim, as Jim just alluded to, going on to Zoom meetings with management. And you ain't see no managers who look like you. You know, people who, you know, come in and show a strength of force just by looking at the images on the on the squares on the Zoom meeting. Um, that, that happens across the board. So for you to come out and to say what you have to say, knowing, like you say, that you think the career is over. Um, I mean, it takes a lot, brother. And, and so, you know, we, we just want to thank you for coming on and, and, and speaking and doing what you do. Well, thank you. One thing I think you both know about me, I'm not afraid. You know, it's just, it's part of life. Somebody at some point in time has to stand for the right thing. Until then, nothing's going to change. And that's why I appreciate you guys. You guys do not hold back. And I think that we need more of that. Because if we're going to change it, and if it's going to get better, it's going to be because of people like you guys who are willing to put people on the platform to really tell their truth. And they can feel comfortable in being very honest and transparent about what really goes on. Appreciate you coming on, Hugh. Thank Thanks you. so much, Hugh. Appreciate Thank you, bro. All righty. Steve, you know, what I take away from all of this more than anything is that we can focus on, on all of the issues that the Browns had and whatnot. But what bothers me most, I think, in this process is that a good football coach is not coaching. And as I said during the interview, you can have philosophical differences with Hugh. You can have personality differences with Hugh. But the one thing I do know in terms of being a football coach and, and, and coaching offensive football, the man is, is one of the best at what he does. So from that standpoint, I'm disappointed that he is not coaching someplace because he should be. 100%, Jim. And we see this happen to coaches all the time. Well, but not, but not I, th- I think this is kind of, a bigger circumstance because he was the face of everything that went wrong with Cleveland. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't the only one uh, involved in this. And he is a damn good coach. I first met Hugh when he was the offensive coordinator for the Atlanta Falcons under Bobby Petrino. Um, And he went through a lot there. So this man has paid his dues. He's gone through a lot, but it's a shame to hear him, you know, even though it's a reality, probably him to say, you know, his career is over, his coaching career is over and him sound so defeated in that. So, um, you know, again, this was uh, this was huge truth. What he wanted to speak, what he wanted to say about this, Jim. And again, we'll we'll see where this goes for him moving forward. Um, but you know, he he had this platform, and he and he said what he wanted to say. Yeah, definitely. So um, anyway, we wish him the best, and we're going to move forward here now. And you know, once again, we we thank everyone for listening. We thank everyone for subscribing continue to leave us messages about who you want to hear from what you want to hear about 
And that way, we can continue to give you more of what you're funking for. All right, that's right, Jim. And now for JT, our producer, Thomas Warren, we are the HU Mob on the Huddle Flow Podcast, brought to you by Intuit, the proud makers of QuickBooks, TurboTax, and Mint. Huddle Flow Podcast. Folks, we are out. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.